I interviewed this top 0.08% OnlyFans creator a couple of weeks ago named Ayla, and she was describing like all of the different platforms she uses to build her top of funnel. And then how like she has like multiple accounts. There's a free account, there's a paid account. You use the free account as lead generation to the paid account. So you have to like decide what content to give away for free, what to paywall. Um, there's like price discrimination going on. It's It's very sophisticated. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode nine of Creator Economics. And our guest today is a rising star in the venture capital industry. She is a prolific writer and thought leader of all things passion economy, creator economy. She was previously an investor at Andreessen Horowitz and is currently working on a new venture that we need to learn about. Welcome our guest, Lee Jin. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm a huge fan of both of you. So and the show it's it's great oh wow well thank you thank you for coming on i i mean i think so up until this point you are you're our first investor up until this point all of our Cheers. guests have been I'm honored. uh creators um and i i think we both really wanted to have you on because you have a unique perspective on on the creator economy i think up until this point we've covered a lot of the big macro uh creator side of this where Typically, bigger influencers talking about you know making a huge living off of having millions of followers. Yep. You're really notable for for coining the term passion economy and writing a lot about that. Like, what is what is that? I guess for people who who maybe aren't familiar about uh, your writing or or the topic of passion economy. Yeah. So, firstly, backing up to the introduction, I. I mean, I'm honored to be the first investor, but I also do think of myself as a creator. So hopefully I won't break that that trend too much. Um, but yeah, I write, I paint, I have a podcast, I have a YouTube, which is a very modest sized YouTube channel. But regardless, I, I think of myself as a creator and I love creating content and always have. Um, yeah, talking about the passion economy. So that really stemmed from a number of things, um, one of which was evaluating marketplace businesses and covering marketplace startups when I was at Andreessen Horowitz for the past four years. So I was working on the consumer investment team there. We were doing multi-stage investing and primarily on the consumer team, we were looking at marketplaces because we loved businesses that had network effects of some sort. So um, anything that would get better and, and deliver a better experience as more users join the platform, um, that was the ultimate source of defensibility that we really like to see in a business. And so as a result of that, we loved um, platforms that would bring together supply of some sort with demand of some sort, because they just tended to have really winner take all, um, very powerful network effects. And so, for instance, I worked on our investment in HipCamp, which is like Airbnb, but for camping, um, Lunch Club, which is like this professional network that helps matchmake people for for networking purposes. Um, I worked on our investment in Rappi, which is like Instacart, but for Latin America, um, a bunch of other marketplace businesses. And what I always really loved about marketplaces beyond the fact that they just make great investments if they're successful is the fact that they represent this really democratizing force for um, accessing work and accessing consumers and dollars. Like it didn't matter where you were from or what background you had, as long as you provided something that was really interesting and compelling and differentiated, you could find business on a marketplace and earn income as a supplier. And I thought that that was really powerful. And it was with that background in mind that I 
sort of formulated the idea of the passion economy, where I saw that transition of marketplaces from gig economy style marketplaces where all of the suppliers were really commoditized and had to do a set sort of steps of instructions that the platform dictated to them in order to make $10 or $20. Um, I started seeing a shift in this marketplace paradigm where suppliers could really determine for themselves um, and use their creativity and imagination to determine exactly what they wanted to offer to the market. So if they wanted to offer a very particular type of newsletter that address certain topics, they could offer that for sale and cultivate a loyal user base who would purchase that and, um, and give them money directly for that. Or they could create a certain YouTube show and make money off of that. Um, really, the key was building loyalty with an audience, creating a really differentiated service or product and growing your audience in order to scale yourself as a supplier. Um, and I, I felt like this mapped better to just how humans want to work in general and how I want the future direction of work to be headed in the world. Like I think that humans are, they're born with this like creative seed and they a desire for creative self-expression. And we feel much more fulfilled when we can utilize our creativity and our imagination in our work rather than just accepting directions from like a boss or a platform. And so this new style of marketplaces, which I came to call passion economy marketplaces and passion economy platforms, were much more aligned with that type of work um, than the old style gig gig work platforms. Um, and so, yeah, I, I consider the passion economy as like a broader umbrella and the creator economy is a slice of that. It's a new type of work that is arising and is predicated on building up an audience, creating really unique, compelling content. But there's all sorts of other industries that are um, being affected by the passion economy model where people are going into business for themselves, developing an audience online and providing maybe a product, a physical product or or an intangible service to a select set of customers and earning an income directly from them. Yeah, so so Blake touched on this uh, right away when he said that you know a, a creator a creator economy like we're we're focusing creator economics we're focusing on the macro so we're focusing on people like Mr Beast and Arak and guys pulling millions of views already mm -hmm. and so you know I'm excited in this episode to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the micro of all of this so what are some platforms that stick out to you or maybe they're platforms that you've actually used or are currently using um, that some people might not know about yeah well yes I I totally agree with that contrast. I think what gets me really excited as an investor and as a person in the society is the promise of like hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of people being able to participate in this economy of utilizing their individuality to make money um, rather than just a very small select group of people who are mega famous being able to profit off of it. So I'm really interested in how do we enable the long tail, help people achieve like a middle class income and um, achieve financial security for themselves, not necessarily having to you know, blow up as a celebrity and, and earn millions of dollars a year, but how can this be an accessible source of income to many, many people? Um, in terms of actual platforms that's helping to make that happen, um, there's, there's so many that are very, very little known. Um, I think there's a really interesting, like, set of bootstrapped companies that no one really talks about yet have just created 
huge businesses off of sort of enabling small creators online and enabling micro entrepreneurship. So an example of this is ConvertKit, which helps people create like web funnels and email marketing funnels in order to sell something to an audience. They got their start doing um, sort of like email lists and email newsletters um, that you would build over time in order to build like an ebooks business, for instance. Um, there's another bootstrapped business called Kajabi, which I wrote about in my newsletter, um, which is now at a one, I think $1 billion run rate. Um, so the creators on the platform are earning like a billion dollars a year on the platform, selling online courses and coaching. And this business, like no one in Silicon Valley has ever really heard of it because they've never raised money. But there's like, I think tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of creators who are making a living full time on Kajabi. Um, I'm also really interested in like the transformation of local services businesses and how to empower more people to um, start services business businesses that serve local customers. So for instance, one of my investments is a platform called Dumpling, which is a grocery delivery platform that helps shoppers start their own grocery delivery business. So rather than work for Instacart, where the platform is really intermediating that relationship between you and the end customer, on Dumpling, providers um, have their own storefront, they own their relationships with the customers, they work with the same customers and families over and over again who really develop a loyalty to them. Um, and they get to keep more of the earnings and really they're building their own business. They, they get upside in the business. They have full ownership over their customers. And it's just a very different treatment of the workers than in traditional gig marketplaces. Wow. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's really interesting because I think a lot of that actually is like summarized and like, there's just more power to the individual and like giving, uh, I don't know if you want to use the Shopify, like arm the rebels type approach, but I think, uh, something that. It, that you've wrote about before that I just think is interesting where like Kevin Kelly has like the famous, uh, you just need a thousand fans who are willing to pay you X amount. And like, you're going to be able to make a really good living. You wrote like a follow-up of that as saying like, Hey, you actually yeah. need like a hundred fans. Like, how do you think about, uh, given that it is, you know, like more power to the individual, having a personal brand is becoming more and more important because that's how you're going to ultimately sell your creative goods. Like, how do you think about, uh, just that hundred true fans and, and I guess like monetizing on a smaller subset of fans rather than maybe the millions of fans that, you know, the Mr. Beast of the world have. Yeah, um, totally. So, so, so just to summarize for the audience a little bit in case they haven't read it. So Kevin Kelly's original blog post, which was published, I think a decade ago, basically said to be a successful creator online, you don't need millions of fans who love you and pay you and support you. You just need a thousand. And that's because the internet removes intermediaries and middlemen. And so you can capture the entire revenue from your audience. Um, so instead of some going to the record label and some going to your manager or whatever, um, as a creator, you can earn everything that your audience pays. And so the math that he sort of laid out was if you have a thousand true fans and you earn um, I think like $10 a month from every each of those fans, you can earn like your entire income from them in a very comfortable way. Um, and I took it one step further where I said, you don't even need a thousand true fans. You just need a hundred. And if you get, if you can get a hundred true fans paying you a thousand dollars a year, then obviously you can make a hundred thousand dollars a year. And there's all of these different ways that I spelled out in the article of like, 
okay, what do you actually need to deliver to your fans in order to get them to pay $1,000 rather than just $100? You need to deliver an order of magnitude more value. You need to deliver a sense of accountability. There needs to be some sort of like results or transformation that's attached to their purchase. Or um, there, there needs to be like some sort of status that they gain because people are willing to pay for status and like being able to show off in front of other people. Um, but it's definitely happening. Like there were all of these examples that I had dug up across like different creator platforms um, where people were actually earning their full-time income from just a small group of a hundred true fans. And they were, they were driving basically um, over a thousand dollar AOVs. Um, so average purchase price was over a thousand dollars and they had like in the order of magnitude of a hundred fans. Um, and these were typically like, you saw this more in the course creation world. Like there were multiple examples of this happening on Podia and Teachable, um, but also on Patreon. Like there were some really, really expensive tiers that some creators offered and they usually came attached with like some personalized like attention from the creator. Like the creator would say, you know, if you're part of this like ultra expensive tier, I'm going to hop on a FaceTime with you once a month and like talk to you for an hour because obviously if you're paying a thousand dollars a month, like you really need help and I'm going to coach you through life. <laughs> um and, and people actually purchase these things. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think the idea of like a hundred true fans is really aligned to be like either capitalizing on that super fan effect who is very price insensitive and just like willing to support a creator to a really high degree. Um, or it's focused on like delivering a ton of like real ROI and value to um to your customers and i thought the the really interesting piece that recently came out about this idea of a thousand true fans or a hundred true fans was um an editorial that sam lesson wrote in the information last week talking about um, the societal problem of a thousand true fans he basically talked about how that model of a thousand true fans requires aligning yourself to such a small niche and being the best at delivering whatever that thing was to a thousand people in the world that you had to go really niche. And this just resulted in a ton of like societal fragmentation of all of the things that we're consuming um, and like filter bubbles and people subscribing to a different set of newsletters than everyone else and taking different courses than everyone else. And we're sort of like losing this society wide level of shared context and shared information and shared language, um, which I, I thought was a really interesting um, angle on what are the societal implications of this model. Yeah, you mentioned Patreon. It's actually interesting too, because Blake and I talked about this last week, and we're seeing a lot of smaller video game creators that won't necessarily make it on Twitch or YouTube, but maybe they create individualized maps or they're good at coding. And these creators are now like, they have these Patreon pages that people will pay $20, $30 a month for. And they're actually just paying to get their maps, their unique creations mm -hmm. within video games, within Roblox, within Minecraft. Have you have you looked at the video game space at all uh, within the passion community? Because I would argue that, that Roblox is probably right now the biggest uh, within the passion community. Have you focused at all on the gaming space? Uh, just a little bit. So I'm definitely not gamer native. Um, I 
didn't grow up playing video games, which at the time was a feature. And now I think it's a bug as an investor. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the companies that I did invest in um, uh, pretty recently is a company called Stream Loots, which helps gaming live streamers, for instance, on Twitch and formerly Mixer as well. Um, it helped those gaming live streamers to monetize their fans by selling them various digital interactions. So their fans could sort of stipulate that they wanted the creator to, for instance, um, play as a certain character or use a certain weapon in a game, and they would actually pay to have the creator do that. So it was a way to like deepen their interactions with their audiences, plus earn additional income on top. Um, but yeah, I think Roblox is super fascinating. Um, Roblox is kind of like passion economy for kids, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely think of like the gaming world as being on the forefront of a lot of the passion economy stuff. I also think that um, the adult community is really at the forefront of a lot of stuff related to creators. Um, I think the stuff that you see on OnlyFans and um, what you see on like that the adult community is doing, I think that stuff is going to trickle down to the rest of the mainstream creator world in like two to three years. I, th- I think that's right. I think it's, uh, we've talked about it before, but I, I, like there's so much of, I don't know, the, the, the creators that are like starred from the platforms because they're not able to monetize in the traditional forms are, are typically the ones where like they have to figure out another way. And like, I think that's the main reason why you see platforms like OnlyFans even rise is because these creators need to figure out how to make money um, and, and, you know, ha- like have a career out of it where the existing ways of making money on those platforms might not uh, be the best way for it. I also think there's another added element, which is that um, I was thinking about like, what are what is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a creator? Um, and like, what are all of the different sources of what are all of the things that creators need to attain? And like, once they've attained that, they graduate to the next level of like, their focus is on that next thing. Um, and you know the traditional Maslow's hierarchy of needs for humans is like food, shelter, all the basic necessities of life, and then it's like love, um, a sense of belonging, um, affirmation, um, recognition, and then at the very top you have self-actualization. Like I am a self-actualized human, and I've discovered like the reason why I exist, and I feel like my existence has meaning. Um, I think for creators, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is slightly different, where at the very bottom, most creators are fulfilled by just creating something. Like you you have, I mean, I think the entire user base of Instagram plus the entire user base of TikTok who are uploading content to those platforms shows that for many people, content creation and being able to create something is like the fundamental thing that they want. And they don't care if there's no money attached to that or if no one's seeing their content. They're, they just feel a sense of joy from creating. I mean, that's why there's so many starving artists in the world. Like they get reward, not just in the form of financial compensation, but there's a joy in just the act of creation itself. And then I think beyond that, it's like audience building. Like I want people to see my work and recognize it and to affirm me and to celebrate my work and to tell me that it's really good. And then on top of that, I think you have monetization. What's really interesting about the adult content creation world is I think I think they very much view it as a job where relative to other forms of content creation, I think adult creators, if they didn't 
have if they didn't earn money from doing it i think a lot of them just wouldn't be participants in the industry like there isn't that same joy in creating content in that category as there is in say like blogging or podcasting um and because of that very like um income oriented view towards content creation i think that's why they're so far ahead um, in terms of like optimizing all of their activities and running it as if it were a business. Um, like I interviewed this top 0.08% OnlyFans creator a couple of weeks ago named Ayla. And she was describing like all of the different platforms she uses to build her top of funnel. And then how like she has like multiple accounts. There's a free account, there's a paid account. You use the free account as lead generation to the paid account. So you have to like decide what content to give away for free, what to paywall. Um, there's like price discrimination going on. It's it's very sophisticated. And I think it's just like a level beyond what I see happening in other content creator creator verticals because she very much does a, approach it as a full business. Yeah, it's actually one thing that I've thought about a lot over the course of the last few years. The the one thing that I've seen a lot with, and let's just spoke, or focus specifically on YouTubers, is that a lot of them see what kind of money is being made on these platforms. And I feel like they're getting into it for the wrong reasons. And I know Blake and I have talked about this a lot of like the number one occupation right now for young kids is I want to be a YouTuber. And that's great, but they're also seeing how much money is being made. And a lot of these kids are getting into it because they think they can make a lot of money. They're not getting into it for the joy and fulfillment of making content. And it just worries me a little bit because just from looking at my creators, all of them started doing this because they loved either playing video games, they loved recording videos with their friends, and they figured out how to turn it into a, into a business. And I think we're seeing the opposite effect right now of a lot of creators coming into the market thinking like, hey, I can make a lot of money doing this. So I'm kind of just going to force it and see if it works. And I think that's why we've seen a lot, especially on YouTube and Twitch, just get rejected. Because if you don't, if you're not fulfilled and you don't love creating content, it's really hard to grind through some of those like tough years when you have 10 viewers and you get a thousand views on a video, even less. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit of a question around paywalls. And so is there any creators that you see that are doing this well um, right now? I know there's some ones at the top of the, the the funnel and there's like bigger ones in Logan Paul and Nelk and some of these other ones. Is there anyone on the micro level that you're seeing um, and not Patreon specifically, but making content behind a paywall um, that people are maybe paying 10, 20, $30 a month, probably more in some cases um, right now. So is, is there any good examples that you can think of in that space? Uh, I think that is the fundamental model of Substack is to create content behind a paywall and to charge like a double digit dollar amount per month for it. Um, and I think for them, there is the struggle of like, what do I pay well? Do I pay well the best stuff or um, the least good stuff such that the best stuff is used to grow my audience? Um, yeah, I, I think that is where I see it the most. Yeah, I, I think Substack is probably a good example. I, I think Substack on, you know, the newsletter side and then, you know, teachable for the lessons and, and that side mm -hmm. as well. But I, I, I think on the video side, it, it's, it, it's really, I haven't seen, maybe there's some Patreon users that I'm just not as familiar with that, that probably do really well on it. But I'm I'm curious. You you wrote like I I found like an old tweet of yours about when Kylie had like her whole like billion yeah. dollar thing, and uh, you were talking about how like she was uh, like obviously incredibly successful, but 
like in order to become like a really success, like she needs to build like a purpose brand. And um, I'm curious, like given that you've looked at the more like bigger influencer side of it with Kylie, how do you think about just what that means to build like a purpose brand? And if you're uh, a bigger creator who's maybe watching this or thinking about building a business, like what do you, what do you mean by that as far as just trying to build something bigger than themselves? Yeah. Um, so I am a huge disciple of Clay Christensen, the late HBS professor who wrote Innovator's Dilemma and Innovator Solution, among a bunch of other books. Um, but basically, Clay Christensen had this framework of jobs to be done. Um, and I'll try to summarize it off the top of my head, and I'm probably going to butcher it. So people should definitely look it up. But basically, he said, um, you know, when you are developing a successful product, um, or I think it was like, if when you look at successful products, they're not ones that like sell themselves aggressively to a customer and, and take this very like sales first posture of like, this is going to help you do fix XYZ problem in your life. The, the most successful products are the ones that the consumers adopt in order to do a job in their lives that nothing else is like satisfying um, and that job currently goes undone or it's like suboptimally done by some other product and then there's this new product that gets introduced that helps me get a job to be done in a better way so uh, he had famously done this study about like i think milkshakes and and like why people purchase milkshakes for breakfast from this fast food chain and um and 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 like a group of a research team at this like fast food chain was trying to figure out like how to how to like sell more milkshakes in the morning or something like that. Um, and basically, Clay's finding from this um, case study was like people were hiring the milkshake to satisfy their boredom on their long morning commute. Like they would get the milkshake, they would because the milkshake was super thick, it was like very hard to suck up the straw. And so it would take them a long time to finish the milkshake. And that would be sort of what occupied them and help satisfy their boredom while they were driving to work. And so customers as a result, like if you knew that was a job to be done, then you wouldn't do things like make the milkshake better blended or and like easier to suck up through the straw. You wouldn't probably wouldn't introduce like all sorts of bells and whistles like a smaller size that they could finish faster like you would probably introduce other elements into the milkshake to make it a, a more entertaining experience to drink in the morning um and so that's what i meant by job to be done like i i felt the job to be done um, that a lot of influencer brands are going to market with is well i think they're not really sure what their job to be done is <coughs> i think they're just selling access to this idea of a person but I, I, I think that those brands that don't have a strong job to be done have a limited shelf life. And so you need to appeal to like a deeper need on the consumer side in order to have a, a brand that had longevity. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it's fascinating to think about. And, and I guess maybe just even taking a step back, like we, we obviously jumped right into passion economy and all of that. But like, how did you end up in venture capital? Like, I, I, I know there was a piece today that, that Reed sent me oh, about, yes. <laughs> uh, from Business Insider about like your story, but um, I think it'd be interesting to just hear like 
I, especially like you ended up in Dreesen Horowitz, which is like a very prestigious venture firm. And so um, like, what's the story there of, of how you ended up in, in this? And were you doing anything prior? Like, was this yeah. your first job, all of that stuff? Oh, man. Well, I mean, the story of how I actually ended up at Andreessen Horowitz doing venture, I, I feel like that's kind of a boring story. And I would I told the reporter this, I was like, I wouldn't write a story about this. It's really boring because I just cold applied. Like I cold applied on the website to a job posting, which is just when people ask me how to break into venture, I'm like, I don't have any advice because you shouldn't do what I did. Like, do not cold apply. It's just really hard that way. Um, I think your method of I think working for free. Yeah, basically working for free. Yeah, yeah that that that's a much better tactic. <laughs> oh, I would recommend of, yeah. that. I wouldn't recommend it either, but it 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 worked. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I was working as a PM in Silicon Valley. Um, I was working on a consumer shopping app called Shopkick, which was venture backed, and then we got acquired. And then um, two years post acquisition, I was sort of debating what to do with my life, and and um, was maybe considering going to business school, then realized I didn't really want to go do my MBA and take myself out of the action um, for two years. And so cold apply to Andreessen Horowitz as a way to be able to like stay in Silicon Valley, stay in tech, which was where I wanted to be ultimately. Um, but I thought it would help me have like a more well-rounded business education. Um, so yeah, I, I just cold applied and then I wound up there after a really, really arduous six month long interview process that this article details. But rewinding, rewinding all the way back, um, like I'm originally from Beijing. I was born there. I spoke Chinese as my first language. I lived there till I was six years old. I came to the US when I was six. Um, we came to Pittsburgh because my dad was going to grad school at the University of Pittsburgh. So I learned how to speak English in elementary school. Uh, uh, through English as a second language. Um, and then, yeah, I, I saw like every tier of American society. Um, like when we first moved here, um, we were living off of my dad's grad student stipend. So we were super poor, like everything we had was from Goodwill. Um, I had free school lunches, like the whole shebang. We didn't have a car. Um, and then he graduated and life gradually got better for us like that corresponded to like moving further and further out of the center of like downtown pittsburgh and um i think it's like that early background that makes me really interested in how platforms can open up economic access and represent ways for many many people to access fulfilling jobs and forms of work which have upside and provide economic mobility for them. So passion economy is obviously one area that you're incredibly focused on. Is there any other uh, areas that, that you're looking into right now or areas that maybe you're investing in currently? And also, uh, at some point, we do want to learn about what you have going on right now because you are no longer with Andreessen. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, totally. So um, I started a new firm. It's called Atelier. Um, I am an early stage investor in the passion economy and more broadly, just anything consumer. I love consumer. I've always been a consumer person. Um, so in terms of what I'm interested in, it's definitely like any platform that represents, um, 
ways for people to access work and income um, that helps them do work that they find personally meaningful and fulfilling. Um, so all the things that we had talked about before, but more broadly, like I am interested in all sorts of consumer software categories. I love consumer social. Um, I grew up on Neopets and a lot of my early like childhood friends were people that I met from all over the world on the Neopets forum. And I would love to find something like Neopets for the current generation, something where you're bonding in a casual, organic way um, through this shared experience, this like, this totally alternate universe, which is just like fun and very low stakes, but also provides like a really interesting creative palette for you. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm super interested in like what the future of consumer social looks like, because I think the last decade of consumer social has been really about like connecting with your already made friends from the real world and replicating that experience online and just making it easier for you to talk to them and share photos. But I'm really interested in how do we help people like form new connections and meet each other and um, interact with each other in completely digitally native ways um, and and how do they express themselves creatively and bond through that 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 self-expression um, I'm also really interested in like finding a new platform for for premium content like I've been on the hunt for an OnlyFans competitor or like the next gen of OnlyFans. I, from speaking to creators in that category, I think there's just a lot about the platform that they are not content about. And I think if there were a more attractive um, alternative that was really creator friendly, I think a lot of them would, would migrate off. And I think it could also have broader appeal beyond just the adult community. Um, and then lastly, I would say I'm just, I'm really interested in like the trend of people becoming unbundled from companies. And um, like, I think we're shifting from an era of work in which you had to work at a company in order to access customers and access income to a platform world in which you are finding work mediated through a platform and pl other platforms are serving all of the sort of administrative back office functions that other teams at the company used to serve. Um, so I think it's easier than ever before for people to become solopreneurs and small business owners um, by leveraging a lot of the new software that exists. And I, I'd love to back more in that space. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, I think a lot of investors who are looking at the creator space or passion economy right now are uh, like intrigued by it. But there's always the question of like, how big is this actually going to be? Like uh, how many people actually are going to use these type of platforms? Like how do you think about I think obviously uh like i i've i've done a few investments in this space and i'm a big believer in this like rising middle class or like there is going to be a longer tail of of uh creators that are making great incomes on these platforms but how do you think about just like the middle class of creators or or try like how create or how platforms can help creators actually like create sustainable careers because i think there's always stories of people who are trying to become youtubers and it's like well, actually, it's it's not you know an easy thing to do full time unless you're at a certain level. How do you just think like platforms themselves can help enable uh, or like make sure that like, uh, creators can have sustainable careers? I think discovery is a big piece. So 
like the platform controls discovery in many cases, and it can either use that to funnel audiences to to the people who are already successful, or it can help funnel those audiences to people who are up and coming. I think TikTok does a great job of this, where anyone can sort of still become famous a, a year later, even though there's already megastars on TikTok, there's still people who are up and coming who get incredible exposure from TikTok. Um, I think it's harder to do that on some of the other social platforms where discovery is um, is not as algorithmic driven and it's much more driven by like your explicit follower signals. Um, I'm also really interested in like categories where there's um, there's consistent need to constantly discover new new suppliers, new providers, new creators. I think certain categories align well to this versus others. I think certain content categories um, have really high like replay value. Like if you love a song, if you love an album, like you're going to listen to it over and over and over again. And that artist is going to accrue the majority of earnings. I, I read some stat that like on Spotify, the top 1% of artists get like the majority of revenue. And then there's a long tail that make barely anything. I think that's that's reflective of the fact that in music, there's really high replay value. And so you get people just constantly playing the same songs over and over again. Um, that's probably true in video games as well. Like if you get really good at a game, you actually prefer to play that same game over trying something new that you suck at. Um, and so for game developers, like the successful game developers just keep getting more successful. Um, I think other other content categories have the opposite effect where people are constantly jumping around wanting to try something new and they don't actually want to stick with the same thing over and over again. Um, so an example of that is like OnlyFans um, where people are constantly looking for new content creators and, and retention is actually not that strong because people are constantly looking for new things to do. I think education is similar to that. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of platform choices can determine whether the long tail is successful and and the content category itself as well. Can you can you talk about some of the investments that you've made thus far? Yeah, totally. Um, well, a really well known one is Patreon, um, which I'm sure we have all heard of. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they've grown tremendously during COVID. And I still think that there's a lot ahead for them. Um, so I'm excited about that one. Um, I also invested in Substack, of on which I am, I was going to say prolific, but I'm not really prolific. I publish like once a month, but it's been, it's been awesome to use. Um, I am an investor in an online events platform called Luma, which helps um, event hosts organize, set up, do guest registration for entirely virtual events on Zoom. So it's built on top of Zoom. Um, I'm an investor in Dumpling, which is the local grocery delivery um, platform. What else? I just invested in a new ed tech company from um, from Gagan Biani, who used to be the co-founder of, of Udemy. Um, he and Wes Cow, who co-founded Alt MBA, which is this like online cohort-based class uh, for business education, they're teaming up to build a new cohort-based education platform that lets instructors um, sort of package their expertise into a cohort-based course. So I'm really excited for that one. Um, I'm an investor in Stir along with Blake. Yep. Um, 
a few others. There's there's a few. I've been very active this year. <laughs> Do you think that, and you said this earlier, that you're a creator. I think you said I'm a creator, not an investor. Do you think that you being a creator actually presents more deals than if you weren't a creator? Because I think Blake and I have both kind of leaned into this, like, we need to be the at least the thought leaders in our specific industries uh, for a lot of the business to to kind of come to us and present opportunities and new opportunities to invest in certain things. So, do you think that you being a creator has presented you with some of these these um, companies that you've now invested in? Yes, definitely, um, and I, I think that takes different forms. Um, I think content marketing is this activity that many investors have started to engage in engage in over the past few years because they've seen just how how much efficacy it has in sort of like broadcasting your views out into the world and drawing founders to you um, because they resonate with something that you write or or publish um, I think that's like one form in which, being a creator is really helpful. It, it helps me to express my ideas, find the founders who are working on that idea and draw them to me. Um, but I think the other element which has been really helpful is just building creator empathy and empathy for people who are trying to make it as like an independent solopreneur online. Um, I used to write about it without ever having actually experienced it myself. And now after like after having my own podcast having a paid newsletter having a youtube channel like it just helps me to more viscerally get it um in a way that i think is really difficult if you're just an outsider looking in listening to people's experiences constantly um i've learned that it is really hard it takes a lot of dedication i think if to your point like if you're not in it for the right reasons i think it's really tough to stick through it i thought you know magically we would just like blow up and become david dobrik overnight on youtube but that hasn't happened um per the latest metrics our youtube channel is like one thirty thousandths the size of david's so we only have to grow thirty thousand times <laughs> I, I wouldn't don't compare yourself to David no. Dobrik. Like let's take a different creator and set them in there. You're like, you're like comparing yourself to like a top five creator, maybe not this year, 2019. Right, right. But I mean, he just he has this aura of like anyone can do this, right? Like he just makes it seem kind of effortless, which I guess is part of the magic. It feels very relatable. Um and yeah, I think we don't see all of the creators who are struggling and who are not successful and who are getting like two views on their videos because by definition, we don't see those videos. Um, but I think that is actually the majority of the market. And so this experience has been really, really helpful in building empathy for them. Well, yeah, I, I think that's, I, mean, I think it's from our end, at least for me, this is, this is like the most formal content that I've ever like produced you know like at least video content wise or like i I've, I've never done this before and so i think it's been really fun and interesting to watch from our side of just like how this grows or doesn't grow or who's listening and whatnot and i think for me it's always been like i care much more about uh who's listening or like or watching rather than like the actual size of that like i'm, I'm much more of like okay the quality of the person listening or watching this is is very good and i'm happy with that and it's like getting to the right audience rather than like yeah i could try and go for you know 10 million views and that would be great but uh it still wouldn't be like the right audience and i think that goes back to even just like the the passion economy side of all of this where it's like find your niche or find your, your and, and i think the biggest thing on the internet is just like 
niches actually end up becoming way bigger than people think and especially Mm -hmm. over time and uh, i think for this you know like this podcast that we're on right now like might look tiny right now but who knows as this continues to grow and becomes like way bigger over time and um i i yeah i just think it's fascinating for you like maybe you could just talk about all of the different places that people can find you because i think like there you are producing so much content Mm -hmm. yes you have your your blog you have your podcast like you have so many different things like one, how do you handle all of that and balance it? Because you're also running and creating a venture fund like from scratch. And then you're also doing all this content. But like, where else yeah. can everyone find you as well? Uh, yeah, so there's a multitude of places. I need to create a link tree, I think, because <laughs> I, I forget some of the links sometime. Um, I have a YouTube show called Means of Creation. It's basically, it's actually taped as a live Zoom webinar every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, so you can probably find me on Twitter talking about it, but we we host a, lo- a, a live Zoom webinar with audience questions that they can actually sort of unmute and ask. And that becomes part of the embedded like content in the show. Um, and then we upload it to YouTube and then we also upload it as a, as a podcast. Um, so that's means of creation. You can search for it anywhere where there's podcasts and on YouTube. Um, There's a paid newsletter called Means of Creation where I dissect the weekly news related to the fashion economy. Um, I write my own newsletter, Lee's newsletter, creative name, um, lee.substack.com. I have one of the only like two letter subdomains on Substack because they've since deprecated those. So I'm never giving that up. Um, Twitter, um, I think my handle is lgen18 um instagram but that's private so don't follow me unless i know you and you want to look at my artwork oh my artwork also lives on lee-jen.co slash art um what else i have a tiktok account but i i it's all drafts like i i haven't published anything i'm terrible i i would love to get better at tiktok actually watching turner novak on tiktok i'm just so in awe and i wish i could do that but i I don't know how to. Uh, And I think that's it. I think that's it. Okay. Well, we uh, we'll do our best to link all those below uh, for those of you who want to see want to see all those links in the YouTube channel and everything else. But we appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you. 